Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here with your church. Uh, we're grateful to see each other, to have relationships restored. We ask that you would come and give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and speak to us today about your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. We're gonna start today with a poem. I know you're excited about this. And so I'm gonna start with a poem from Emily Dickinson to kind of kick this off, uh, to get you really in the mood. Um, it goes like this. Tell all the truth, but keep it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Emily's hitting on a really profound nerve here. Whether today, in the 1860s, uh, or 2,000 years ago, sometimes um, delivering truth can be difficult. Sometimes people can't receive that truth. If you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed to speak up or bring truth to the table, um, but you knew that that truth might take things south in the conversation, has anyone ever been there? Um, you know you need to say something. COVID opens up lots of opportunities for us to have these type of interactions. Um, sometimes the best thing to do is to roll the truth out gradually. A small conversation here, another one there, really prepping the ground for landing uh, when, we bring, when we bring what we really want to say. Often the best way to deliver truth is to tell it slant. Jesus was a master of slant talk. Um, we call these things parables, and there's lots of them throughout the gospel stories. Um, and this week, we step right into the middle of one of Jesus's parables as he discusses the kingdom of God. One thing I love about Jesus is that he never speaks the way we expect him to. I mean, we know most of what he said came from the scriptures, and when he spoke, the, scripture, the scriptures came out of him. Uh, they kind of flowed through him. But when he engaged people, in his interactions, his common everyday interactions with people, he never used lofty language. He never spoke down to his listeners or spoke from outside of them. But he came down to their level and he mixed the deep truths of the scriptures with everyday stories. Stories that a rural agrarian people would be really familiar with. Stories of sheep, goats, lost coins and bandits, of merchants and weddings and dinner invitations. He stepped into their world, into their shared human experiences and using that connection, he used it as a means to communicate and to challenge some of the presuppositions they had about him and his kingdom. Eugene Peterson points out that of the 40 or so parables in the gospel accounts, only one takes place in a religious setting. And uh, they rarely mention God, if at all, in the parables. These are wholly secular stories. I love this is the way Eugene Peterson says this. As people heard Jesus tell stories, they at once knew that they weren't about God so there was nothing in them threatening their sovereignty. They relaxed their defenses. They walked away perplexed, wondering what he meant. The stories lodged in their imagination, and then like a time bomb, they would explode in their unprotected hearts. An abyss opening up at their feet, he was talking about God, and they had been invaded. The scandal, right? I love that idea of the parable coming in almost like a, a Trojan horse, and then opening up inside of you when you're away and you have time to, to contemplate. It's really quite fascinating because when you look at the, at the parables of Jesus, uh, we have the whole story written down. So we, we see the parable being told um, and then we see the explanation, right? Jesus takes the disciples aside. He tells them, this is what I was really saying. Um, we have a narrator that kind of gives us this. The people hearing Jesus' parables for the first time had no narrator. Uh, he would come in and he would uh, give them these stories very raw, unexplained. Then he would drop the mic and he would leave. 
And they were left to sit with these stories with no explanation, just to kind of ponder what he might have meant. That's where I'd really like us for the next few minutes to sit today is to really put ourselves in their shoes and try to hear these parables through their eyes and see what the Lord might be trying to tell us about the kingdom of God and our role in bringing that kingdom to life. So I'll start off by asking this question, how would you define the kingdom of God? And just to think about that for a moment, because our understanding of what we think of the kingdom of God influences and informs how we interpret stories like these. Often in our day, we take very abstract approaches uh, to a text like this. So there is a kingdom somewhere. Uh, it's maybe abstract, kind of connects all Christians throughout history. It's the kingdom of God, kind of this abstract idea. Someday will be a reality, maybe in the end of days. And there's some truth in that. In the first century, however, the Jews had a more concrete, and I would even argue a more accurate view of the kingdom of God. It wasn't an abstract idea, but it was very real. God's rule and reign coming to earth. They longed for that day. They looked for a Messiah who would bring that to life. He would put the world to rights. Now to understand this, we have to see the world through their lens. These people had been conquered. They were oppressed people, right? Under the boot of Rome. For them, God's coming kingdom meant that an oppressor would have to be overthrown. There could only be one king. And if you can imagine, kings don't usually give up their power peacefully. So when they talked about the kingdom of God, these ideas were often tinged with some violent imagery. Uh, we're kind of removed from this, right? But for the first century, they had these echoes of the Maccabean revolt in their ears. If you've not heard this story, some 200 years before Jesus, we're talking about just around the age of our, of our nation, um, 200 years earlier, the Seleucid Empire had ruled over the land of Judea. They had issued decrees that forbade uh, Jewish religious practice. They weren't allowed to circumcise their children anymore. They ruined their churches and their, and their houses of worship. They set up idols and they instituted worship and sacrifices to the Greek gods. And we see in the scriptures, if we turn back to the book of Maccabees, it covers this story as Judah Maccabee. Uh, Judah, his name, his nickname was the Hammer. Have you heard this before? Judah's a tough guy. His name's the Hammer. Anytime you want to uh, put an army together, having a nickname like the Hammer is probably a good name. Uh, MC Hammer, that sounds tough, right? And uh, MC Hammer even had a song called Hammer Don't Hurt Him. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's a tough guy. But anyway, Judah, the Hammer, and his brothers... Um, they pushed the, the, uh, the oppressors from the land of Judea. They restored temple worship. Uh, now, this was a short-lived event. They were able to kick them out, started temple worship again, and then they were conquered again. Um, but his legend spread throughout the land. Uh, coincidentally, this is the story, if you know the Hanukkah story, this is where the Hanukkah story comes from, because when they cleared the temple and reinstituted worship, uh, they had enough oil to only last for one day. If you've heard this story before, the menorah, and they put the oil in the menorah and it lasted for eight days until they could get more oil for the menorah. So this is where that story is all tied into the story of the Maccabees um, and how it all ties together. These types of stories, our ancestors winning our freedom, they can be intoxicating, right? They can be romantic. I remember the, uh, the first time I saw Braveheart. Has anyone here ever seen Braveheart? I mean, when I saw Braveheart, I was ready for revolution. The English had to go from everywhere that they were. Like, you know, as a, I remember being a younger kid, I even went, moved to Scotland at some point because I just wanted to live in that land. And so it was, this is what happens though, um, when these stories are fresh on people's minds, you can imagine what they thought when Jesus asked them, what does the kingdom of God look like? It looked like a Messiah coming to take vengeance upon his enemies and restore his kingdom. However, Jesus and these parables challenged that perspective. The kingdom of God wouldn't come through violence. It wouldn't come through swords. 
Rather, the coming kingdom was going to be much different than they expected or anticipated. In fact, it would outlive their oppressors, spread across the earth, bringing new creation wherever it meant, wherever it went. They just needed to adjust their expectations. So if Jesus was working to reorient their perspective on the kingdom, what was he trying to say? My first observation in this text is that rather than a forced rebellion, Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom grows naturally. That's why I'm not a big fan of the subtitle here, but depending upon the the version of scripture that you have, it may say something like the seed that grows secretly or something something to that effect. I don't believe that's the case at all, right? I think the image that the Lord's given us isn't about a secret seed, Uh, growing or a magical, this is not like the Jack and the Beanstalk where a seed goes out and overnight this giant thing pops up and changes everything. What I think what the Lord's painting here is a very real, natural, organic process of growth. And everyone who deals with seeds or plants would understand how a seed grows. My wife is obsessed with plants. Um, At times there's a significant part of my monthly budget, which I'm thrilled about, that goes to plants. And um, (laughs) there's tall ones spiky ones, dangly ones. Uh, You can tell that I know nothing about these things. Um, But if you've seen Jurassic Park, it kind of looks like that all throughout my house. And I've seen her rhythms and I've seen all that she does to take care of our little Tucker jungle. Um, But it never really hit me until she left town for a while and I had to tend our garden. Um, All that goes into this, um, testing the dirt with the little, there's a machine. You just look to see where the thing goes and you put the water in to it doesn't make sense. Uh, but I would water these plants. I would have to turn on lamps uh, during the day and turn them off before I went to bed to make sure that the plants are getting the sun that they needed. Saying kind words. She talks a lot about saying nice things to the plants. Jesus cursed fig trees. But uh, anyway, uh, I tried to say nice things to the plants because she likes to hear, the, the plants like to say nice things. But I didn't need to understand the specific biology that explained everything that was happening with these plants. I... Uh, But I understood how this process worked. All I needed to do was to be faithful and to trust the process. And it's the same as the people that Jesus was talking to. We all have a role to play. In this story, the farmer tills the ground, the farmer scatters seed and tends the earth. And then what's the farmer do? He rests, he sleeps. The role of the farmer was to be faithful and let the earth do its good work. This parable tells us that the earth produces of itself. First the stalk, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. We are not the catalyst for growth. The Lord is the catalyst for growth. And that can be really liberating for some of us. Um, I know in my own life, I carried that burden. I had done some missionary work overseas and just throughout my life, feeling like this burden was on my back to to make something happen. Um, And that's a responsibility that I I just honestly couldn't bear um, all the time. Uh, But when the kingdom's operating efficiently, we each have a different role to play. St. Paul picked up on this theme in his letter to the church at Corinth, and he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who gives the growth. We need to know our role and our responsibility. And for us in the church, our responsibility is to be faithful, to scatter, to water, to till, and then to rest well. We can't force or speed up or take credit for the good work that God is doing in the lives of others. The earth is doing its good work. God's kingdom is being born in the hearts of men and women. Do your work and learn to rest well that God is in control. My second observation here is that God is found in the small and the insignificant places. 
Our second parable speaks of a mustard seed, this, this tiny seed that when it's planted, it grows into a large bush. And the image is that birds make nests and find refuge in this giant bush. Um, this would no about bring to mind visions of the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel. Um, several weeks ago, we went through the book of Revelation and we talked about Ezekiel's vision and some of the things that Ezekiel talked about the tree and uh, people finding refuge under God's tree. Daniel also says this in his fourth chapter of his book. He says this, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew and became strong and its top reached heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth and its leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from this tree. All this from a little seed, from a small place. I love uh, one thing about our God that, I, that I'm just fascinated by and I love is that he is obsessed with the insignificant and the small. Um, all throughout the scriptures, you can't turn to a story without finding him finding something small and making something big or finding something broken and making it beautiful. Um, Abraham, an insignificant man from an in insignificant place that God chooses out of the entire earth to be the father of many nations. Moses, a man who was, was flawed in many ways, uh, timid, chosen to be the voice of God and to lead God's people. David, the youngest of his brothers, small, chosen to be king. And most importantly for me, Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God, um, a teen, Palestinian teenager in the middle of nowhere, uh, chosen to give birth to the Messiah. This is the type of God that we serve. Uh, one who makes his home in small places, planted deep inside, and then changes the entire landscape around that area. There's a band I listen to called My Epic, and they have a song where they explore this, this theme, speaking of the resurrection, they sing of the corpse of Christ as a seed planted in the earth. And I love the way he says this. He says, the earth explodes because she cannot hold him and all therein is placed beneath him. And death no longer reigns. It cannot keep the ones he came himself to save. And as the universe shatters and darkness dissolves, he alone will be honored. We will bathe in his splendor as all heads bow lower still. Rome saw Judah as insignificant. The world sees Jesus as insignificant the small things that you do in the lives of people in your life and the way that you serve others and bringing the kingdom of God, they can seem insignificant. But just as the mustard seed was unimpressive, these are the beginnings of big things. As kingdom people, we're called to be co-laborers, living into this kingdom reality in such a way that seeds are planted and they're cultivated. We're called to be patient, knowing and trusting that God is at work and he's faithful. And just like the mustard seed, things that we do like almsgiving, taking care of others, lending an ear to the broken, late night conversations with people in bad places, showing grace to people that are struggling with addiction, offering forgiveness to those who wrong us. These small acts are the seeds that grow the kingdom of God. And it's in these holy spaces that God shows up and his kingdom really grows. So if you've forgotten your place in this story, if you've tried to micromanage the work that God's doing, or if you've let apathy steal uh, your attention from doing the good work that God calls you to. This is an opportunity to reflect and to let the Lord reorient our hearts. He's often not found in the big flashy spaces, but in the little things, in the quiet unknown spaces where we serve other in our private devotions. 
Amen. This is what the Lord has been teaching me through this text, but there are so many different things that you can pull out of these uh, parables on the kingdom. So I would challenge you this week to spend time with the kingdom parables and to ask the Lord what he might be saying to you about you and your role in the everyday things you do to bring his kingdom to life. Amen. Amen. As you're able, please stand as we declare together the words of the Nicene Creed.